The theme for the afternoon talk is the illusory uh, nature of uh, I and my. Uh, firstly, I'd like to be explore the uh, bigger picture and and then towards the uh, immediate immediacy. It's not uh, unusual for us as uh, human beings to know and experience a place or places in the world which are rather special, and spiritual, sacred and have some deep meaning and resonance uh, for us. It is not always easy to explain with our mind, so to speak, um, uh, why that is so, but there is certainly a certain resonance there. And it can be that in the course of our life we have been to particular places, possibly on pilgrimage, possibly on retreat, in an area, and something about that location has some deep significance uh, for us. And it can be a genuine source of comfort at times as well, just to know there is that place, wherever uh, it uh, might be. Sometimes it is called home. Sometimes it is called the locality where uh, we live. Sometimes it is called uh, uh, the forest or the city or town or village of pilgrimage and much, much more. And a number of us are here with years, in fact decades, of close connection and intimacy uh, with the, the forest here. It also has a, a deep resonance. We arrive here and for others as well, though it is the first time, um, something in the forest, in the support, in the the structure of the trees and the diversity gives support to us. And with memory, and this memory is always a little uh, 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 tricky uh, here, but it seems to me, and I wonder if this is connected with the larger picture, from my memory there, that the amount of diversity of wildlife in the area is diminishing. And my memory tells me from decades ago that it would be quite normal and quite common in the course of a retreat here to see a snake, to see a, a, a possum and to see a goanna. And I've noticed in recent years that just occasionally, I'm sure they are around, and sometimes I've asked, I have the camera uh, with me to show the, the, the grandchildren. And, but I just wonder as well, and even with the cicadias as well, whose deafening evening orchestra, we had to organise the evening talk to allow the orchestra to put out their full blast. Um, and sometimes it could, could be seasonal and so forth. Even that world is quieter. I hear a few of birds in the uh, dawn orchestra at the start of the start of the day there, and recent figures this month shows 
from the scientific research and analysis globally that there has been since 1970 a 60% drop on this earth of mammals, birds, reptiles and fish and other creatures. And then that figure has dropped 8% just in the last four years, another 8%. And what we are reading and what being told by our uh, researchers, by our beloved uh, scientists, that we are on this, in this era of mass extinction, and it's the first time that this has been triggered, it's the sixth one, but this one has been triggered by human behaviour. And if you were to take, if we were to take in sh the sheer numbers of uh, drop of variation of species, if it was our own species with a 60% drop, it would mean there would be no people in North America, South America, China, Africa or Europe or Australia. That's how big the drop is. And that outgoing... Uh, a situation with all the terrible tragedy that's uh, ongoing is primarily caused by two reasons. One is, very obvious, loss of habitat. And the second uh, reason is the consumption of food and particularly meat and dairy products. And it's going to take for us, uh, in this larger picture, to look at what is our identity, what is going on with this self, this world of I and my, personally and uh, uh, collectively, and to see collectively what we can initiate and create. It's a huge undertaking. And every one of us has some duty and responsibility and sacrifice and exploration to help facilitate some change. And it will only come from us, people like us. It will only come from the grassroots. It will not come from top down. Because they don't know. They don't know. They may have information, they may have the knowledge, but the knowledge isn't leading to action there. Then we ask, but is it all human beings? No, it is not human. all human beings. It's not that our entire species is responsible for all this terrible devastation in, in which climate change and extinction of, our, of species and their endang endangerment, endangerment uh, for them are uh, due to all human beings. It's human beings with a single problem, unresolved and unquestioned. And it's said two and a half thousand years ago, and, it, and it's still being said, the major contribution is desire. It's the excess of wanting. And the ego, the self, socially, individually and collectively, is, has got itself in this mess of wanting. And the pressure of the desire uh, of the wanting in our species is contributing to, as we know, this climate change, mass destruction of species and land 
and all the suffering consequences that go with it. And sometimes, I know it sounds like a very grim picture, hang in, sometimes when we look at the larger picture of things, the self feels small. It feels to be shrunk. It feels to be in the face of this immensity, what can I do? So the self then feels paralyzed. It loses its capacity. It shrinks in the face of these huge global forces and global changes. And something in the being, the being of us, needs to change to see if we can see and understand the illusory nature of I and my, which then can release and it can liberate something else utterly different from it. And this is the huge challenge. In terms of desire, <coughs> there, and just to make it clear, because uh, in the English it's a little difficult sometimes. It's a translation, of course, from the language of the Buddha of Pali. The word is tanha. Desire is a threefold event. There is the desire, I want, I want. There is the desirer, the self, who wants, I want. And with the self and the desire, there is the outcome, getting what I want. And this construction, self, the desire, and the dependency on getting uh, what I want, this has and continues to impose itself on this world. This construction. And the construction is not only persistent, it is not only continuing at a devastating pace, it is being actively encouraged by our institutions. The institutions are desire-driven institutions. The political, the social, the educational, the competitive. It's a drive to sustain this construct with its imposition on life on earth. And we see the consequences of it. And that movement of the desirer, identified with the desire, and in terms of getting what I or we want, shrinks the human being quite often around the interest of the self, and sometimes it might expand a little more, called the interest of the family, it might expand a little bit more, including the interests of the uh, institution, the group, and it might expand a little bit more in the interests of the nation-state. And so from the personal, to the family, to the social, to the corporate, and to the nation-state, the I, the desirer, the desiring, and uh, the desires, influences that we end up looking in that way, thinking and believing in that way with all the consequences. There cannot be 
suffering in this world without the activity of the desire, bruh, the desire, desired, desiring or desire, and the desired. Every act of greed, every act of violence, every state of living in fear has in it, permeating in it, some expression of desire. Tragic it is. Tragic how as a species we've got ourselves into this horrendous mess there. And Dharma teachings, I have to say, to their everlasting credit, is willing to face and to question and to look at this. And it will not buy the current propaganda, which I find personally abhorrent, a propaganda is, is okay to have desire as long as you're not attached to the results. That's a pathology of thinking. And we say, well, and sometimes we hear that and we say, oh, everybody has desire. We can't live with desire. Remember climate change. Remember the extinction of the species uh, there. It's not that we can't live without desire. We can't live with it. And if you and I are willing to look at the I and the my, which is the dynamic of the support for the desire, if we're willing to look at that, perhaps in some reduction, some dissolution of all of that, perhaps it can release out, out of us an action in the world a way of being in, in the world which is not permeated and sickened in a way by self-desire and the pursuit of result. Something else can come out of the being and we can call it by 101 different names, uh, obviously. With the teachings, that means the Dharma teachings, there is a, a, a very um, precious statement and this just want to mention, because sometimes we need a few one lines of um, uh, uh, support. I, I read, because I'm from uh, England, I do apologize, and, and I read re recently that one in eight people in England is now either a vegetarian or a vegan. And the vast majority of those who are taking that step, that means like something like one in four or five, are women. And the vast majority of the women who are taking that step are young women. And it's this movement to change, just talking about diet for the moment, from the desire to consideration, the motive may be health reasons. Very valid reason. A motive may be concern for uh, animals, these, these uh, horrors, these concentration camps of um, uh, uh, factory farms. And that change in that looking is a giving up of the old, as use it as one example, to explore something new. And then what happens is that the industries with us want to get us back 
to the old. And the current propaganda to getting us back to the old, you need your protein. That's what we're told. And people then go to their Chinese doctor or their, whoever they might uh, go to or they listen to their friends and say, oh, I need my protein. Uh, there. It's a myth. It's a complete and utter myth there. 50% of the meat anyway, protein is burnt out in the cooking uh, there. But more importantly, plant-based diet as one it, exploration to support diversity. Uh, uh, there's plenty of protein. And you're, you're in more danger for your health with too much protein. And it's this questioning which changes from desire and I need and I must have to a fresh alternative way of looking and exploring and finding it. And we need each other for those kinds of expressions. And just one of them is with the diet. One of them. It's a total exploration that I'm referring to. There's a text of the Buddha. And uh, a, a, uh, one line of Ajaha uh, there, and it's in the middle-length discourses, and it says, Sabay Dharma Nalangyabinasaya, the words of the Buddha. Sabay, or Dharma. And in this case, the context is everything. Everything is a Dharma. Everything. So all things, heart, mind, body, the world, all things, of all things, Sabay Dharma Nalangyabinasaya. Abhinasaya. So the literal is of all things, none of them are worth clinging or being identified with. Nothing is worth clinging to or being identified with. Nothing. Nothing. And why? Because it's so unreliable. So in our relationship, keeping with the theme with you for a moment or two, there is the self, the desire, and the desire there, and how humanly and easily enough we get identified with what we have a strong interest in. And the identification is the I, it's rather nice in the English, the I makes an entity of. So there's the movement, the wanting, there is the holding, there is the being identified with, and this is who we think we are. Oh, no, it isn't. It's a myth. And so extraordinary is, is this mythology that we have that we have names and the names, we think this is who we are. And we repeat it. Somebody comes up to me and they might ask me, say, oh who, oh, who are you? And then I say, oh, I am Christopher. How could I be Christopher? It's just a word handed down from my mum, single mum, li living in this 
little remote farm in the north of England, and she decided the name was Christopher. And then she gave the second name, which was George, because her parents were never around, but her uncle was, and his name was George. And then the third name I got was Wood, and, which is rather, I rather like, I'm rather happy. And Wood is the name of my father, who I n never met and who never actually wanted to meet me uh, either, but my mum gave me as a third name. And then the fourth name is Ditmus, which is the guy that she married after a few, a few years. And so the passport says that I am Christopher George Wood Titmus. Just four words plucked out. And this is supposed to be who I am. And then I have to go through these silly, meaningless little rituals of showing it to some guy behind some piece of glass. And he goes, mm, 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 mm. I mean, what has happened to us? We're mad. Yeah. And then sometimes as, as well, it, 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 it extends itself, this who I am uh, there. And it's habit is the killer. It's the repetition of the same. And through the repetition of the same, the this is who I am, then becomes the identity. And it's extraordinary. I was sitting in the coffee shop where I make my daily pilgrimage in Totnes for Holy Communion. <laughs> and people in the coffee shop, and yes, obviously some I know, I've been in the same town 36 years, same house, you know, 36 years, etc. And people are talking and chatting. And must be a year or two ago, the two people were talking, and they were talking about Christopher Titmus. <laughs> who they didn't know and I have a friend in front of me talking and my body language is going like this yes. Yes. so curiosity I'm leaning to the west etc they could have been talking about the Pope the Dalai Lama and um, whoever else people are interested in the, in, the, uh, in this world I couldn't care less but the name comes up and they were actually saying quite nice things, which was surprising, really. Uh, but the, na the name came up. And then there's interest. What, 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 etc. Uh, there. So the potency of the name and the interest, the identity with, with the name. Is it possible for us? Sabe, Dharma, Nalang, Abinasaya. That... We don't attach and make an identity out of some words as a start. We don't make an identity out of being an Australian, being English. There. And even though there's such a, a, a movement and collection of identities, but remember, what we identify with, we are also disidentified from. What we hold to, the stronger we hold, that's the desire, to our identity, the more there will be the polarity of the other. Can't have a war without strong identification with one position and therefore undermining 
and looking down upon and dehumanizing the other. It can't happen without desire. It can't happen without identification. It can't happen without clinging. And we are fed this. Fed it we are. Where is the liberation if one is identified with a name, identified with a, uh, a group, identified with an institution or with the state? When I went to see Ajahn Buddhadasa, the, the, by two teachers in Thailand, <clears throat> um, I rather like them because there's a certain respect in being disrespectful. And they were pretty good masters of it. Uh, to take two, two points. <clears throat> Ajahn, in the first meeting with the Ajahn Buddhadasa, forest monk, you know, there's a long tradition of this, of a deep spiritual, religious, in the best sense of religious, cultural nourishment which comes out of the forest. To be in the forest and to spend uh, time uh, in it, something about the fading, natural fading of much identity to give rise to something fresh and new. And when I met with him, it was the very first meeting there, asked him some questions, I was a young traveller in my twenties on the road uh, there, and he quoted this one line of the Buddha, and then he took hold of the robe, it's one of the kind of, um, I think, magnificent moments that sometimes one recalls, pulled it off his shoulder. And he said, Nothing is worth being identified with, including being identified with the idea, I am a monk. And pulled it off the shoulder and he says, what is it? A piece of cloth. <laughs> wow. Young guy in the room went, whoa. <laughs> Where did that one come from? Six months later, the ordination took place. A new ordination could take place without having to become a Buddhist monk. Ajahn Damodaro, dedicated Buddhist monk, years in solitude, walked every single province on a yatra, um, 70 of them in Thailand, from one end of the country to the other. Walked through every single province of Thailand, from the deep south right to, to the north. I went to him once. I said to him, this is a Buddhist monk, I said to him, how do you, how do we know the Buddha ever lived? Maybe it's just a wonderful story, and it's been put in the books, and it's passed down. Maybe, maybe no, 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 such, no such person as the Buddha. He said, who cares? <laughs> he said if the practice is working practice lovely attitude oh, I can meditate with this teacher I don't have to be identified with and this gives some chance and some real opportunity to free up the, free up the being and there's a, such a precious distinction here 
between the identification with which brings the polarization and that identification with that clinging to is due to desire to looking in a fresh way moving out of that uh, viewpoint and as we touched upon the other day the exploration of connection trees and earth and flowers and people and nature and, and all the precious things of life but then it gets a little closer to home and it's re really uh, important sometimes we find what we are um, um, identified with is either that which is around us called things and it's called people and sometimes in the world of change that takes place uh, there quite often it is things which matter more than people the identification with things can be greater than it is with person or people and no better illustration in such uncertainty and insecurity in relationships and the identification and the closeness and the intimacy with the uh, uh, relationship sometimes for some people the in the drama and the crisis within the uh, relationship of course it can be very very painful and but that painfulness the sorrow the grief the despair the hurt the pain it has desire in it what is it that i as a human being i didn't notice going on in myself that the desire had some identification usually with some kind of continuity some kind of perpetuation in the field of time which will hold us together which will keep us together whatever it might be and not recognizing that wanting and that there she or he says thank you but the grass is greener on the other side of the fence or in my case I love you Christopher but you're never around so they leave the nest and if we've maintained the vigilance what is the wanting what is the holding or the desire really noticing it more and more it will allow with the connection and the love and the appreciation for another human being to be with us and not be with us because they're right to be with us we may not understand why she or he has left us we may not be able to fathom it out why why it all went pear-shaped why it all went uh, went wrong but in the relationship if there has been regular vigilance around desire and to see any holding going on and to really work with it it will allow those transitions it will leave with loss with death it will leave sadness it would be rather bizarre if a human being didn't experience sadness at loss and 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 death and departure the, the, the buddhist 
teachings recognizes the immense significance of sadness in life. We're not trying to get rid of sadness. It's a healthy response. But when the sadness is identified with, and we grab hold of the sadness there, it easily leads to grief, which he speaks about a great deal. And grief is wanting it to be wanting it to be different from what it is. That's desire. And that can generate a lot of anguish and upset. And then the Buddha says, the desire, that means from the sadness to the grief, that itself can intensify, and then, and he says it then can go to lamentation, meaning an intensification of the level of grief. And it can be so strong for human beings that it can go then to despair. I can't go on living without him, without her, without my kids, without whatever it might be. And it's a challenge and a sharing for us to be able to explore separation, which comes in life, loss, which comes in life, organic, natural sadness, which comes in life. The Buddha expressed sadness in his old age for the loss of some of his loved ones, his best friends who have been with him for decades. And to see from the sadness, can I be quietly with my sadness? And that may last for some period of time, but be very mindful and vigilant, is it going into grief? And reactivity. And anger. And despair. And all of that. Uh, tragedy. <clears throat> we look at and explore. God, I'm just warming up here. So <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we are identified, so to speak, by that which is closer to us. Uh, there, and of course, the body uh, being being. Uh, 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 one of those, and as touched upon with our meditations, to really see, can I make the, a shift, even if it's just temporary, just to start looking more as nature, as uh, a formation of the environment, this is uh, the body. But how easily, in the events of the body, and perhaps all too uh, often, the I arises. So there is a movement going on, and then the I arises, and in its emergence into consciousness, the I grabs. It's called sickness. It's called pain. And the I, in its emergence, says, I am sick. I have cancer. I have these pains in my, in my body. But the I doesn't come clean. It's not a clear, independent view. The I needs something to push it into consciousness. It needs a background. It doesn't emerge out of the blue. And so when there is stuff going on inside, movements going on inside, 
which we may not know about, we may not see, and we may not have enough peace of mind, when the movement takes place, the eye comes and it lands upon that pain, on that cancer, on that ill health, on that getting close to the end of life viewpoint, or whatever it might whatever it might be about. And when it does that, we get an unfortunate mixture. It's a mixture of one's past, which generated the eye, the views, the feelings, the views, etc. We give the eye a real reality, happening to me. It's not happening to you, it's happening to me. This is my issue, my cancer, my conflict, or my suffering. And that pain, or that sickness, deep or light, the two bond together. They glue together. And the friction of that pain and that, or that sickness with the eye gluing itself, as it were, impacting the friction of that touch strengthens the eye. It has to. And then the thought is I, I, me, me, my, my. And it keeps repeating itself again and again. And of course, it increases the worry level. It increases the anxiety level, which in turn gets in the way of the healing process. I, I. And somehow there's been the reinforcement of it. We, we keep perpetuating it. And Dharma teaching, to use a kind of little technical language here, is kind of seeing the emptiness of I. There are situations in our life where you and I, we've kind of made a fuss about something. What, what, whatever, whatever it might be there. And we got into a real little little storm about it and we bored our friends to bits with our self, self, me, me, I, I story and they, oh please, not again, give me a break, you know. Don't you know somebody else? You know, whatever, whatever uh, it might be uh, about. And, if, and once we've bored all our friends out, we're looking on Google, who is the nearest psychotherapist in the Shannon? Uh, um, I'll, I'll pay a hundred dollars, a hundred dollars an hour, whatever it, it is, to bore the, the psychotherapist and pay for them to be bored. <laughs> Apologies to the psychotherapist, here. <laughs> uh, etc. So there is this I, I, the reinforcement uh, that goes on uh, with the I, and. With it, not only is it having an impact on us, I, I, me, me, my, my, it's also having impact on the other. It isn't a narrowly defined e e event. And when there is a certain amount of pressure in, inside of our self, and the I and the my is in the middle of it all, of course we need to talk about it. Of course will need to uh, share it uh, with the other. But often that voice, important to share, important to speak, to speak about. But 
if we only talk about it is a temporary relief from the pressure because the words have come out the mouth and the, then we have a temporary relief oh thank you for uh, listening to me and enduring me for uh, 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 etc and there is a relief but there's no insight and therefore no hope because it will gradually build up again and then one is then looking for some other poor devil there. and we don't realize the voice precious as important is valuable when some insight is coming from the dialogue when there is some recognition in the event that the old is not working because I'm feeling so much pressure I'm feeling so much stress and so much anxiety and the eye is just getting a little bit of relief but the insight isn't emerging and we need people with us it is no empathy if you say somebody comes to you with the drama and the trauma of their life and you say to this person it's not empathy if you say oh I know how you feel I went through that myself what good is that two are miserable <laughs> one's bad enough now there's a collusion for it it's not about empathy is not about bringing in one's own old past empathy is about listening to share to explore to see what might be the steps towards a human being coming out of their suffering that's empathy it's that sense of concern not dragging in one's own personal history or if one does minimally people sometimes say to say to myself um, oh Christopher a person can only really understand another if she or he has experienced it themselves I've been the small servant of the Dharma for 40 years. Do you know how many dramas and traumas and crises and suicide attempts and depressions and worries and fears and hospitalizations and sicknesses I've had to listen to? My God, if I have the view, I've got to experience all this myself to understand it. What? I'd be pushing up the daisies in the rainforest by now. Sometimes in life, not to have had any of these experiences is the best preparation for empathy. Not to have it. So the heart and the mind is relatively clear. And if we have had, which may be the case, has the insights and the understanding emerged from it, which may be of benefit for the other. In the identification with the view, now, <clears throat> sometimes 
probably get said to you a few times, get said to me a few times. Oh, your, this is, this is Christian. White, middle class, and privileged. And sometimes I smile if that's the view. I put a hand on the heart here. I don't believe any of those three statements. The presentation, actually, the skin's not so white, kind of pinky, browny, whitey, it's all over the place. And though the concept and the constructions uh, can arise, and sure we all hear them uh, regularly enough, could it be it's just an appearance, it's just an external interpretation? And if I'm not any of that, and I'm not a name, and, and I don't have a nation state, and I'm not in all of these constructs which been, has been imposed on us, it is not to say, oh, this is who I am, and then have some nice, big, fancy word. It's enough in life to say, this I am not. Not to say, oh, you know, I'm not that. And then some, oh, I am pure consciousness. <laughs> I am the divine. I am the son of God, the daughter of God. I am, I am, I am. Oh, boring, I am, I am, uh, etc. No, it's to see what one is not. And not in the box of all of that. So yesterday evening, because the Dharma questions the obvious, the obvious means the social agreement there, and that which seems obvious around I and my may not be from a Dharma perspective. 1990s in Budgaya, teaching the annual retreat. A young, bright Swedish woman sitting on the retreat. She came up to me just before the beginning of the retreat. And she said, I'm deaf. I was born deaf. So I can only uh, uh, lip read. For those who don't know the sign language. So I said to her, please come and take the seat. Right down here, just right in front here. So then you can read uh, the lips over the... 10, 20 days uh, of the retreat at that, uh, at that time. And similarly with the, uh, uh, the one-to-ones. And then in one of the one-to-ones with her, I said, you're not deaf, you know. And she said, Christopher, how can you say that? I'm not deaf. I said, no, you're, 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 you're not deaf. She said, I've been deaf since... I've always been deaf. I, I, I am deaf. And I uh, responded to her. I said, if it's the true reality, I am deaf, then the eye would have to be in the ear, because that's where the deafness is. That's what's going on here. And I said, you won't find any eye in there, you know. 
You're not deaf. There is a biological circumstance and event in the body, in this locality, uh, uh, there. But it's not worth being identified with. It is just there. But you are not deaf. It's what's going on here. And that is not you. So you can't be deaf. It registered. I said, I never believed I would say this. He said, Christopher, I am not deaf. It is such a relief. And afterwards, she came and she said, just, just to thank you, just for that two-minute inquiry with her. And sometimes the view changes. It changes so radically. It changes in a way that we couldn't imagine there. And so the worry, the fear, the disappointment, the sense of disability, and much, much more, this is how I am, has changed. Because a fresh view, a fresh way of looking at the situation has taken place. And our dear, beloved planet is reliant and it is dependent on a fresh view. The old isn't working. The scientists have confirmed it. And therefore it's our task and our under undertaking to explore, question, not take any single problematic or divisive view for granted. And it's not, I want to add here quickly, it's not a teaching about oneness. The nice idea is a beautiful experience, etc. It's a teaching about looking at the way things are, the inquiry and the realizations and the cooperation together to change things. It's not holding to a view, not even the sweet view of oneness. That view is not worth being identified with. Helpful and beneficial in its time, that's all. And then finally, uh, looking, because it's a teaching of expansion with all the precious explorations that uh, uh, can go uh, with it, it's a real vigilance. And that vigilance here is to have a sense of the wish for, which is beautiful, the action which may emerge from it, which is beautiful. Just as the old sadhus of the East have said to us, letting go and sacrifice and doing without is important, and my goodness, today it really obviously is important there. And so if we can let go of the holding, the cleaning, and the things around goods, things and items. I've had conversations including people in this uh, hall over the years and obviously elsewhere, where people have gone to a funeral. They're sad. There's some grief. There is some sharing. There's beautiful words said perhaps from the, the preacher or from the friends or the family about the, the mother, the father, the relative, the friend who, who, who died. And they're genuine and they're heartfelt. 
And sometimes that is really carried well and uh, into the future. And sometimes a death will bring people together. But there's no guarantee. Because sometimes the will is read out later. And then the arguing starts. Then the disputes. Then the desires come in. Then the wanting comes in. Then the conflict. And then the no speaking to each other uh, comes in. Because the goods mattered more than the respect and the love for the loved one who died. And that's not just occasionally going on. That's going on a lot. And I know some of you in this room who have been through this situation of fighting over money, over property, over things in the house. And we need to look at this relationship with things and money and goods and each other equally. And it's the happinesses which come to us which are actually happiness which comes to us in life. Happiness doesn't have desire in it. Interesting phenomena. So sometimes we look around and as many of you have said, God, it's so lovely to experience the forest. Sometimes you've looked around and appreciated the dedication of uh, uh, the practitioners here. Sometimes you've looked around uh, there and just experienced the, uh, the silences and much, much more. And it's just kind of come out of the being, just emerged out. And you can't buy it. You can't own it. It just comes. And those receptivities in life, they're very freeing up of the being. And if this world is to be loved and protected, it needs an immense happiness If the world, as it were, makes us unhappy, we are not fit for purpose. We can't respond. We need the happiness to deal with the challenges. And all those expressions of happiness and joy and love in life are critical to our earth. A happy human being genuinely happy, who is not engaged out of wanting and desiring, genuinely happy, has a tremendous amount to offer. And let's really find our happinesses. Let's really touch upon our joys uh, there. And be extremely clear, this world is vulnerable. There is a climate crisis taking place. There is a terrible depletion of, of species. There is desperate fragmentation in the global human community. And we say, yes, that is there. We're not denying it. We're looking at that. And happiness matters too. 